Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Talking about sex, the message today is going to be more than just, hey, there's the naughty stuff, be married, boom, like that's it. It's going to be more than that, it's going to be messier than that. I'm not going to be intentionally brash or crass, but the Bible is erotic, and we're going to look at some of that. My hope for you is that some of you have been abused, some of you are in sexual sin, so there's people there that have been raped, um, that God would bring healing, that there'd be new freedom for some of you that are in your marriage relationships, new vision for your sex life. Uh, those of you who are married, I had somebody after the first service, married 49 years, said we, were, we just had a conversation we've never had and we needed to have and that God will do something like that here. And there'll be uh, some of you that are single, uh, a vision for whether you're supposed to be single forever, whether you're going to be married, what your sex life could look like. And so what's gonna happen right now is I'm gonna pray. If you've got a young person in here and um, young person, your parents can't handle this message, if you wanna take them out to the lobby, uh, that's great. Um, But bridge kids, uh, zero through fourth grade um, in the elementary building up on the front part of our campus and then uh, middle school ministry and five, six are out there. So uh, you guys can head out and do that right now. But let me pray, let's pray and then we'll jump into the word. Father, thank you. Uh, that you speak to us about stuff like this, that you talk about things that aren't just high and lofty um, theological concepts about one day when there's no sin and when there's no death and when there, you do tell us about that stuff, but you also tell us about here today, our bank accounts, uh, what happens in our bedroom, what happens in our everyday conversations and our conflicts and all the stuff that takes place in life and the the culture wars and persecution and, and times of plenty and in times of want, God, you speak. And talking to right now hundreds of different people online and in this room, uh, you know that there are lots of stories, and I couldn't possibly address all of them, but your Holy Spirit can work. And so I'm going to beg you right now that your Holy Spirit would do beyond what I could ever do uh, as an orator or a preacher or any of those things, and that you would, you would speak to hearts, transform minds, renew them by your word, um, give us hearts that desire to see you and are able to see you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yesterday I had the awesome privilege of officiating a wedding of a couple of Southbridge members, and before the wedding got started, I was talking to the different parties, the groom side and the bride side, and different people were nervous that they were going to mess up the service. And I said to them, I said, hey, listen, no matter what happens, somebody falls down, we drop a ring, I say, I say something wrong, they're going to be married at the end of this. Like, is that the ritual of the deal that's happening here? Like, if you fall down or somebody catches something on fire, we're just going to have a really good story, okay? That's what's going to happen. And uh, they kind of laughed a little bit, removed some of the anxiety. But what happens in our culture is, you know, we see the Prince Charming marries the princess or, you know, uh, whatever royal wedding happened a couple years ago and all this stuff happened, say yes to the dress, bridezilla. Like, there's all these things that are like, put all this pressure to have this perfect service. It's perfect. You know, you go watch the royal wedding and it's like, who's who? And then you have your wedding and cousin Eddie shows up in his leisure suit. Like, well, those are your people. Like they're there. And so then they come and then something goes wrong. And I was looking this week as I was preparing for this message. Uh, Jimmy Fallon, every once in a while, late night TV show host, every once in a while does a hashtag challenge. And he did a hashtag wedding fails challenge. I read about, oh, I don't know, 200 of those uh, this week. And as I was reading through them, there were some great ones. There was one about a, a, a Best man in the wedding gives a toast. He's given the toast. He proposes to the maid of honor. I'm like, what a jerk. Like, steal the show. Come on. There was a photographer who tweeted in uh, this picture. Read the tweet, though. 
I'm so impressed he got the picture, right? It's not just a button. As he's falling down, he snapped this picture. Way to stay on your game, man. There you go. There was another one. Maybe this is, as a pastor, a fear of mine, that I will say the wrong name at a wedding. And one woman tweeted in that her, her groom, the groom, the, she's married to for 30-some years now, his name is Mark, but the pastor kept calling him Mike. And when, he got to, when the pastor got to the part of the service where he says, Mike, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Mark's brother, who's named Mike, said, I ain't marrying her. I don't know what the pastor thought at that moment. In first service, somebody said, my dad did my wedding, and he called my groom the wrong name. Like, it happens. It does happen. And so this, this, this stuff fails. The worst wedding I've ever heard of, though, actually happened a long time ago. It was in the 1800s, 1847. And the context for it, uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with U.S. history, was it was in Texas, and uh, there was a, a debate that some people have called the greatest feud ever in U.S. history. And so you've heard, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys, like all this stuff. This was a, an argument about a border war in Texas. So this has been happening for a long time. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, the, Texas was not always a state. It was once the Republic of Texas. They had their own president, Sam Houston, and there was a, a feud that went on for about five years between two groups. One was called the moderators and one was called the regulators. It went on for five years. There was, if you read about it, it's like movie stuff, like the wild, wild west, stealing hogs, stealing cattle, fraud, people being murdered, sometimes murdered for revenge killings, sometimes subtle killings, like lots of people killed, and it's a mess. So bad that Sam Houston, the president of the Republic of Texas, had to come down and actually negotiate a peace treaty. And I think that was in 1844, 1844, 1845, there was a peace treaty signed. But you know how this goes in real life, right? Like we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When we have conflict, a lot of times we say things are okay, but then there's bitterness and the anger, and you harbor that, and you seek revenge. Well, that's what happened at this wedding. It was in 1847, so two, three years after the peace treaty had been signed, there was a man, old man Wilkerson, they called him, who was putting on a wedding, and, the, and at that time, they would put all this stuff in the newspaper, and it was a big, like, citywide event, and it was the first time they were going to have a big celebration where regulators and moderators were going to be coming back together. And so old man Wilkerson's daughter was getting married. He had adopted her. One of the news headlines actually said, old man Wilkerson's daughter finally getting married. Which I'd be like, come on! Like, if I was her, like, what kind of headline is that? And the news article said about it, it said that women in town were getting their old dresses out and getting their dancing shoes ready. Like, this was a big deal. People were going to come to this deal. But remember, there's still this tension between these families. There was one family, the Saunders family, that was invited, and they were waffling. They were like, I don't know, we're going to go. No, we're not going to go. We still hate those people. He stole a bunch of our pigs, and so he wasn't going to go. And then they committed to going, and at the last minute pulled out. But... And what appeared to be a peace offering, old man Wilkerson put a big feast together, sent it to their house. And they actually said, before we ate the food, we thought, maybe old man Wilkerson's not so bad. Until two of their kids died, and then the wife died, and the only people that survived in that family were the husband and the oldest son. And you have to read the story, it's pretty gross how they ended up surviving, I won't give you those details. And while that was happening, back at the wedding, about 60 people had eaten the cake. The cake was laced with arsenic. Who did it? Ah, still a mystery. But the Wilkerson's didn't die. Neither did the bride. A bridesmaid did. Uh, one doctor said of the 54 people that he had brought to him that uh, had been poisoned at this wedding, 17 had already died, 15 were in critical condition. They said that at this wedding, that people were calling out in distress with cow horns. They didn't have 911 back then, so this is like a call for distress. Can you imagine being at a wedding 
where people are being intentionally poisoned. And then I thought, what we're talking about today, marriage has been poisoned, sex has been poisoned in our culture, sexuality has been poisoned in our culture, but what do we do? Because God's given us this thing, believe it or not, sex is a good gift given by Him. Marriage is a picture of the gospel that's supposed to be put on display, but how do we do that in this world? And so today I've titled today's message, How to Handle God's Good Gift of Sex in a Sex-Poisoned World. If you got your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. His plan, believe it or not, is better than your social media activism. It's better than a documentary that pulls back the curtain and exposes the problem, whether it's about what is a woman or what's happening in marriage or the issues of pornography. It's better. God's plan is better than that. Do you know what it is? It's you and me and how we live this stuff out. Hebrews chapter 13, just one verse today. We're going to focus on verse 4. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Maybe you're new to our church. We've been studying Hebrews together for this whole year. And so we started way back at the beginning in the first verse, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews is an interesting book. It doesn't start like some books. Like sometimes the books will start with, to the saints in, and we're glad you're here. Go visit the first time guest tent, and like whatever their language was. But in Hebrews, it comes in hot. The author just goes, God speaks, and he does it through his son. He says it like this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days he's spoken to us by his son, which leaves us asking the question, what does he say? But that's not what Hebrews answers. Hebrews then says, let me tell you who the son is. The son, he's greater. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. And we spent about six weeks just going through what Jesus is greater than. Greater than all power, greater than all glory, greater than all of creation. He brings a greater covenant, a greater commitment to us. He is the great high priest. And it is through him, at one time, only one guy could go into the presence of God one time a year. But through Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Amen? at any time because of his sacrifice because he had the greater sacrifice with the greater covenant. And then he speaks to us and he starts to say things like, don't drift. We don't naturally drift toward God, so don't drift. And then he says, and I think if there was one verse that we pulled out of Hebrews and we're like, if we forget everything that happened, let's not forget this one verse. Do you remember this one? Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. Respond. Because what happens when you harden your hearts is it gets a little bit harder every time. Eventually you don't hear his voice. Don't be like Esau, unable to repent. We talked about that. When he says, says, don't drift, don't harden your hearts, respond. And in this faith journey, faith, the, the, the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things unseen, Hebrews chapter 11, it's something you can keep doing. In fact, it's like running a race. So keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of this race. And you've got your race. Everyone's got their own race, but we don't run alone. So together, let's do this. Throw off everything that hinders. Keep going. Chapter 10, 11, 12, been all about that. Then chapter 13, it looks like there's just a whole bunch of stuff he forgot to say. But Pastor Dave showed us last week, that's not what's happening in chapter 13. Remember, chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, set up chapter 13. It says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us, and this is the key word, so if you didn't underline it last week, underline it this week, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because of who he is. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. So everything in chapter 13 is about what does that worship offering look like? It's not killing goats on an altar, by the way. (laughs) 
We saw last week, showing hospitality. We're going to see this week, it's sex. And so I am saying to you that sex is an act of worship. To some of you, you're going to be like, that sounds cultic, pagan, dirty. That's because of your view of sex, not because of what the Bible says. We'll unpack that. Hopefully you'll have a greater vision by the end. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage, so here's the context, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so here we have just one verse for this whole message. And this one verse breaks into three parts. And so we're going to keep it real simple. We'll keep that verse up on the screen. First part, in the English translations, it's broken in phrases by the commas, the, each part of the passage. The first part, let marriage be held in honor. Isn't that interesting? It says among all. So even believers and non-believers. That word honor means to value, and so it's talking about in the first part, valuing marriage. And what's happening here is we're setting the context to hold in high regard, high respect, with high value, this institution of marriage that God has established. He established it in the beginning. He's got a patent on it. He is the creator. He gets to say how it goes. Genesis 2.24. It's between one man, one woman, for your whole life here on this earth. It's not eternal, by the way. Another message. We're not going to get into that today. But while you're here on earth, that's the context in which the sexual relationship is supposed to take place. Anything outside of that is outside of his patent, outside of his design, outside of his plan. Sometimes the way that I've shared this when I've talked about sex, and I think I've been sharing this since I was a youth pastor, is it's like a fire. A fire in a fireplace is incredible. It's an interesting name for a fire, the fireplace. It's the place for the fire. It makes sense. Why do we name some things the things we name them? The foyer. Why in the world? We're not French, but whatever. It's the place before the place. Whatever. You wouldn't call it. The fireplace is the place for the fire. In the fireplace, fire is incredible. In fact, it can enhance the sexual experience. Just a little tip. No extra charge. But if you take a fire and you put it in the middle of the living room, best case scenario, you have a mess. Worst case, life-altering damage. A lot like sex. In the right place, a beautiful. What God intended. Outside the context. And so what's happening in the first part, set in the context. Value marriage. Next part is talking about sex. Where did you see that, Pastor Scott? Look at it. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed is a Hebrew idiom, which is a way of saying, uh, this is a way of saying something. Uh, a euphemism. A euphemism is a way that you soften something, and most people pick up what you're putting down. They get what you're saying, even though you didn't directly say it. The marriage bed is a way to talk about sexual intercourse. But did you notice there's worship language here? Undefiled? That's interesting language for talking about sex. Hmm. We'll get to that. Here's what you need to know. You cannot separate your sexuality from your Christianity. And that's why a lot of people get tense when you talk about this at church, because that's what you do. And that was not the intention. In fact, it's a intentionally chosen word, climactic pointer to the intimacy that God desires with you. The last part is a warning. Did you see that? God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so here it is. Sex, there is a poisoned version of sex. There is a twisted or perverse version of sex. And when I've talked to people one-on-one, -on -one, individually, about their sexual immorality, I've sometimes been told this, God will be my judge. What they're trying to do is say, stop talking to me about this. But what I want to say back is, yeah, he will. Is that comforting to you? Because it shouldn't be. Because in the Bible, it's a warning. 
It is true. God will be your judge. Me telling you about your sin is not to do something for my life. It's for you because God says he will judge this. And it says right here, there's a danger with this. And so here's my hope. People hearing this, lots of different stories. Um, some abuse, some rape, some pornography addictions, some people incredible experiences, some people great, but not all that it could be is that God will bring healing and freedom and a new vision. And we're going to start with the negative. We'll start with the last part of the verse, the last phrase about the judgment that's there. And the first point is simply this. Flee, or we must flee the danger of poisonous sex. We must flee the danger of poisonous sex. Just think about it like this. What if you were at a wedding and you knew the cake was poisoned? What would you do? Not eat it. There's step one. What if someone you loved was eating it? You stop them. You do whatever it takes to stop them, right? Like you dive across the table. Like it doesn't matter the scene, what Jimmy Fallon gets tweeted to him. Like it doesn't matter. You're stopping them. In fact, you'd probably stop the electric slide and you'd get up on stage. I need an announcement. The cake is poison. Don't eat the cake. That's what's happening in this verse. And it says here, that God will judge the sexually immoral or adulterous. He's already set the context for where marriage, or for in the marriage context is where sex is supposed to take place. What the author is saying is this is dangerous. Adulterous is a very specific word. So let's make sure we're on the same page of what these words mean because some different people will be thinking different things. Adulterous is a specific word for people who violate their wedding vow. It was for married people. Sexually immoral is any and every sexual encounter or usage or experience or thought outside of the marriage context. So we've all been guilty at some point. Let's just be real honest about that. That's what sexual immorality is. It's everything outside of God's plan. And what it's saying in this passage is, this is dangerous. Flee this. Handle with care. Where do I get flee from? Well, flee is because that's what you should do with danger. It's why this building, they required us to put these exit signs on here. Do you see them? Just so you know, there's a little tip for our building usage here. There's four of them. I'm not a flight attendant, but boom, 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 <laughs> over there. Why? Because if there's a fire, you're not supposed to go, that's cool. Get out of here. If, if you're going to the beach, have you ever noticed on the way to the beach, they have for hurricanes an evacuation route? There aren't any signs pointing you to like lookout point. Here's the best place to see a hurricane. Because wisdom says that when there's danger, you flee. The Bible uses that language elsewhere when it talks about sexual immorality. First Corinthians chapter 6, the context of that is, because this is a passage easy to take out of context, the context is that Paul's about to quote a portion of Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's just talked about incest in chapter 5. Now he's talking about how ridiculously insane it is for you to unite your body as someone who's the body of Christ to a prostitute. And so that's the context, and look at what he says. Do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and here's Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. But, contrast, he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's the picture of marriage, actually. The intimate relationship that happens at the point of salvation between you and God, your union with Christ, the one union of Genesis 2.24 is pointing to that. It's a unique union unlike any other. So what do we do? Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Okay, let me pause here. Uh, that's difficult. Bible scholars debate about that. What about drug use? Isn't that a sin against the body? Like there's different arguments, lots of views. Here's what all Bible scholars agree on. 
1 Corinthians 6.18 is saying sexual sin is different than any other sin. So when you hear people say, sometimes well-meaning, all sin is the same, the true part of that is if you violate the law in one way, you're guilty of the whole thing. The untrue part about that is common sense tells you all sin's not the same. And the Bible says here, sexual sin is different. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body, it says here. So flee! That's the answer. Not pray, memorize these verses, get some good friends, get out of there! Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, young pastor, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue, okay, so you can't, it's like telling somebody who's addicted to porn, stop it! <laughs> okay. That doesn't work. You're addicted to drugs. Don't do that anymore. Yeah, I know. But I keep doing it. Okay, don't do that, but you've got to go to something else and you need to find something better. If you're not going to replace that thing with something better, then you're going to go back to that thing. So what's better, and that's what he tells him here, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Jesus said the only people that are going to see the Lord are the ones who come with a pure heart. Matthew chapter 5. Do you long for that? Do you long for righteousness? Do you hunger for holiness? That's what he's saying. Go after that. Not this other stuff. Run from that stuff. It's dangerous. Best picture of this in the Bible, Genesis chapter 39. There's a young man. His name is Joseph. And there's a woman who's his boss's wife who keeps trying to have sex with him. He said no. He's taking a stand. He set his boundaries. But one day she grabs him. She's going to pull him in the room. And he doesn't go, well, you know, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says... There was no 1 Corinthians 6.18. It's Genesis. It's in the beginning. He ran. Why? Because you run from danger. And it says in the passage that she was still holding his coat when he left. This guy's famous for his coats, if you read his whole story, by the way. (laughs) Still holding it. He's gone. He's out of there. You got the coat. Can't have me. I'm out. That's what you do because it's dangerous. The problem is Many of us, you maybe grew up in church and your youth pastor told you about STDs or you know, somebody's going to pregnant and all this stuff and you got scared and you're like, yeah, it's, it's, most of us think it's dumb, but we don't really think it's dangerous. I read a story recently about a guy who's a 17-year-old kid. So guys that remember when you were 16, 17 years old, somebody dares you to do something, they're like challenging your manhood. And so this guy, his name's Liam, he's in Australia, uh, 17 years old, his buddy looks at him and says, you won't eat that slug. <laughs> They were sitting on a wall, slug came rolling up. He said, I thought to myself, it won't kill me. And then his buddy said, I'll give you $10 if you eat that slug. Huh, done deal, right? Like, what? I would have done it. 16, 17 years old, and I was an idiot, but I would have done it. He grabs the slug, he eats the slug. About three days later, he's not feeling right. His muscles are tightening up. He doesn't know what's wrong with him. They take him to the hospital. The doctor says he needs to have his appendix removed. They remove his appendix. Oh, problem was, that wasn't the issue. <laughs> Free appendix surgery, thanks very much, you <laughs> know. They sent him home, and he starts to experience symptoms of paralysis, intense fever. They took him to the emergency room. They put him in a tub of ice. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, so they put him in an induced coma. He said, when I went into the coma, it was 187 pounds. When I came out, it was 84 pounds. In the coma for four weeks, what they found out that happened was the slug was carrying a parasite. When the slug died in his system, the parasite went to his spine, traveled up his spine, and into his brain. He said, when I woke up, he almost died. When I woke up, I had to relearn. He said, I knew how to talk, but I couldn't get my mouth to do it. I had to relearn how to talk, and I had to relearn how to walk. And he weighed 87 pounds. He needed to eat something. And his exact statement about the whole scenario was, I knew it was dumb, 
but I didn't know it was dangerous. And that is how most Christians actually treat sexual sin. I mean, yeah, I know that, and then here's what you hear, and I hear this as a pastor, you probably heard it of your friends, you may have said it yourself. But I've been married before. Do you think you're the exception? Nope, you're not, by the way. But you gotta try before you buy. But, you know, variety keeps things interesting. But, I mean, we bring pornography in, but it's just because we both agreed, so that makes it okay. But, so you, you know that God doesn't want you to do that, but you're the exception? That's dumb and dangerous. Flee all sexual, everything that's outside of what God has told us to do. Well, what do I go to? Well, that's the great news. The passage actually tells us. It's not just stay away from the bad stuff. It's telling us it's dangerous. Now, listen, I could tell you how dangerous. You know, when I was in high school, I had a sex ed class. I went to public school. I can't fathom, by the way, and this isn't to pick on you. Like, if you're a teacher at one of the local Christian schools, maybe you can go back to the administration. I'll be a guest lecturer at the classroom for you. I don't know why Christian schools don't teach sex ed. Like, we know the author. <laughs> like, we, should, we have a corner on the market on this deal. But it's getting tainted. We give it away. And so when I was in public school, they actually taught us about safe sex. Does that imply in that means there's a such thing as dangerous sex, by the way? Now, what they taught us to do was wear condoms and take pills so you don't have unwanted pregnancies and don't get sexually transmitted diseases. No one ever addressed the soul. So they don't, they don't have a corner on the market for that. But there's a soul, there's a reason why this is a worship context. So flee, you're, there's damage. I mean, I could quote you, the CDC says that one in five adult women have been raped. Think about that. One in five. That means it has impacted someone in this room, just so you know, and watching online. 43%, I think I'm at 42, 43% of young Christian men intentionally seek out pornography on a regular basis. 72% of young non-Christian men intentionally seek out pornography on a regular basis. Okay, well, it's become a norm in our society. Like, I remember when I was a kid, like we didn't have phones and all that stuff. I told a friend the other day, we were talking about pornography, and I said, man, when I was a kid, you had to like go to a gas station, pretend like you were 18, there was like all this shame. Now it's just like, hey, look what I found on my phone. Do you know how dangerous that is? Secular studies, this isn't some Christian scare you stuff, all right? This isn't like your youth pastor going, you're gonna die. Like, here's the reality. They have proven that pornography is more addictive than cocaine and heroin. Cocaine is a stimulant, gives you dopamine in your brain, that's why it's addictive. Uh, Heroin is an opiate, it makes you relax, it gives a relaxing, calming effect, that's why it's addictive. Porn does both. And they have proven scientifically that porn rewires your brain. The neurological pathways, and so you think about a pathway. What a path, it's like if you, were, if you travel out in the woods and the grass is long, but you keep traveling the same path, eventually you've got a path there, and then everybody goes down that path because that's the easiest path. There's no resistance. What happens neurologically in your brain as you start to have more and more pornography experiences is you develop what they call an intimacy disorder where you're actually unable to experience what God designed for you. That's soul damage, just so you know. That's secular study. Get away from that. But okay, but what do I go to? Timothy was told, flee the passions of youthful lust, but to pursue, what do I pursue? Marriage is a window to a greater vision. That's our second point, that marriage is a window to a more valuable vision. That's why the passage starts with, hold marriage in high honor. Honor marriage, depends on your translation, but the word honor there is timios. Uh, Timios means to have high value. 
And you think about things that have been, have you ever seen something that was like high value and then it dropped in value? Like, have you looked at your 401k lately? I don't know if you know what's going on in the economy. Um, or your budget, as gas prices and groceries, like inflation, like your dollar has dropped in value. Like there are different things. I have one friend who invests in cryptocurrency and he texted, I was going into a meeting with another pastor and I just got this text from him and he's like, did you see what happened with Terra Luna? Terra Luna, those of you don't know, was called a stable coin which is an ironic name. It's an algorithmic stable coin, meaning there's not actual dollar backing it, it's through a, an algorithm. And it dropped in value in 48 hours from $120 to two cents. So two days, it was just like, and so I got a text from him, he was like, it was like $80 and now it's like almost a dollar. He had sent me at that time. I was like, what in the world's going on with that? So I Googled later, what happened with Terra Luna? And how much was lost? I saw articles, depends on how they explain things and what you're looking at, between $45 billion at the lowest amount and $500 billion of investors' money was lost. And what was happening is people were going, why would I buy a bond? A bond's only like 2 or 3% return. I could use this and it's stable coin, so I invest it and then I get 18 to 20% interest back. And one lady said, so I don't know how many dollars were lost, but I know this lady lost all of her dollars. She said, I took everything I had, $40,000, I put it in there, I thought I was going to pay my house off, now I have nothing. Can you imagine value dropping like that, that fast? But then, do you know how foreign it is for me to say that marriage should be held in high honor when you think about the way we talk about it today? You just think about marriage, the debates that are happening. And I'm not even talking about like same-sex marriage and, and civil unions and all that stuff, but the fact that we talk, like if, if I ever was brought on, like sometimes they bring in religious people to give some commentary on what's happening. Like, do you think gay marriage is okay? And then they'll ask them, I'd say, what are we even talking about? Because when you say marriage, and when I read in the Bible about marriage, that's not the same thing. The very fact that we use transactional language when we're talking about marriage should be a warning sign to you. We talk about tax status, civil unions, legal rights, who gets what. Do you know there are many Christian counselors that if you go to them about how to have a good marriage, they will teach you negotiation tactics over a contract? But when you read the Bible, it's not a transactional deal, it's a relational deal. And it's not two sides trying to come to common ground, you've become one. There's a oneness that takes place. So the very fact that we're even using transactional language should be a warning to you that what you have, if you're trying to have what God wants for you, is under attack. And it's not because somebody else is going to get some legal right. It's because they're not even talking about the same thing that we're talking about, that God's talking about. Last night, my wife fell asleep before I did, which happens basically every night. And so uh, sometimes what I'll do is I'll watch uh, movies, sometimes movies I've seen before. And so I turned on Saving Private Ryan. I've seen it. It's like 20-some years old. Don't make fun of me. A bunch of you watched Top Gun last week. So there you go. <laughs> and I haven't seen the new one. Don't ruin anything for me. Uh, but Saving Private Ryan... Uh, is off of Netflix on June 30th. I did see that notice when I clicked it last night, and so I start watching it. Uh, the, not the opening scene, but like about four minutes into the movie is the first battle scene. It's when they're storming the beaches of Normandy. Seen that? If you are not okay with intense brutality and warlike scenes, I wouldn't watch this. It's intense. And after about the first four minutes, which are emotional of the movie, it gets intense for about 30 minutes. And it's then, specifically, the U.S. Army troops that were storming uh, the dog green sector of Omaha Beach, about an eight-mile stretch of beach. And they're coming in these boats, and they show the men. Tom Hanks is the star, and his hand's shaking before he grabs his own canteen. So he's the leader, and he's terrified. 
Other guys are throwing up. I don't know if it's because of the boat, because of anxiety. They're just throwing up. People are kissing their crosses, doing their, all their religious stuff, and one guy's stuffing tobacco like he's macho man. Like, you see all these different personalities. And when they open the boat, the guys can't even get off the boat. They're getting killed. And people are getting shot in the water, and bullets are going through helmets. Body parts are flying. There's blood everywhere. But the, about 10 minutes into that, Everything pauses, it gets quiet, and they let you see it through Tom, Cruise, or Tom Hanks' eyes. And people are being exploded, catching on fire. It's awful and overwhelming. And what I thought when I was watching is it's, it's easy to forget. They're on the offensive. They're the ones that, because I'm watching going, hide, run, get out of there. But they're the ones attacking. And... I know history, not like a history expert, but I know they win. But I'm watching it and going, retreat. I thought that's like marriage. God's the one who wrote it. He's given it to us as followers of Christ. It's supposed to be part of and maybe the primary way that we point people to the gospel and actually living this stuff out. Like the, the Bible, you can say, is a marriage book. It starts with marriage. It ends with marriage. There's a whole bunch of marriage talking between. Why does God, when he talks about his people, use marriage analogy continually? They're, committing, they're worshiping statues, and he says, you're committing adultery. He didn't sleep with anybody. Esau didn't Where does it say in the Bible? But then he's called an adulterous man when we read Hebrews. And it's because they violated the covenant that he has with them. He's broken the relationship. And he says, that's adultery. He says to one of his guys, his mouthpiece for that day, a guy named Hosea, I want you to go marry a whore. And she's going to cheat on you, and she's going to sell herself to other men, and when everybody else is done with her, I want you to go buy her back. Church people would be like, God would never do that. It's in the Bible. And why? Because I want you to know what it's like to love the way that I love. And then... We see in the Bible, I told you at the beginning of the end, I've already mentioned several times, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, for this reason, there's a reason for marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and so it's male and female, and it's real interesting that he says that he'll leave his mother and father when Adam didn't have a mother and father, because he's setting precedent for all of time, but what was the reason? And then you jump to the end of the Bible. I said that, that was there. Did you know there's a wedding at the end of the Bible? It says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Here's why marriage should be honored, because it's all over the Bible, and God honors it. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, this is the end of the earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, get this, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God. It's an exclusive relationship. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's great vulnerability and intimacy here. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And maybe you've heard that verse, specifically that verse at a funeral. And this is just talking about sin's done and pain's gone and because people are mourning and people are, and the pastor's trying to give comfort. But do you know it's in a cosmic wedding context? 
where the bridegroom, Jesus, is being united to his wife, the church, his people. Those of you here who have a relationship with Christ, that's you. And, I, and I, that's where eternal life is headed towards, is a cosmic wedding. And then at the very beginning, why, was, why in Genesis 2.24 was there a wedding? Because it said in Genesis 2.18, you're supposed to fill the earth with children. Okay, but then he gives the context for how that happens. It's a marriage relationship, an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. But remember right before that, he just said, it's not good for man to be alone. But he doesn't create man a buddy. Amen. He doesn't give him like his man club. He doesn't give him, you know, a cousin, a friend, a small group. Like, all oh, those are great. But there's nothing like this. A wife? And what makes that so special? And, and why does God keep using that language negatively when he talks about people's sin, but positively when he talks about intimacy with his people throughout the scriptures? He talks about, at times, he talks about negatively. Do you know there's a passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, and study this yourself, where God's going to divorce his people? So God's against divorce. Yeah, God hates divorce. It's not divorce like we think about in America. Most of us in America, when we talk about divorce, I mean, we're going to end this relationship for whatever reason. We can argue that it's a Bible reason or it's not a Bible reason, but we're going to go get another person because this person is the problem. That's what I get when people come to me. I got a meeting about it this week with somebody. They're going to get a divorce. Here's what, and this is going to tell me how awful the other person is. I'm going to talk to the other person. going to tell me how bad that person is. And then, don't you, see, don't you see that I should be happy? And it's like, do you, can we just, can we just talk about the Bible? I don't need to know the tit for tat and who did what and why that, but let's just talk about what God's intention was for this. Is that what's happening? Because when God says about his people and Jeremiah that I'm going to divorce you, what he's saying to them is, not divorce like we think about, he's saying, what we have isn't what I covenanted with you. I'm not going to pretend that it is. So we might call it a separation, and it lasts for 70 years, by the way, in the Bible. And what God does, he doesn't go get new people. I'm going to wait until you're ready to have what I offered you, this intimacy that I offered you, this reconciliation that can happen between us that you've broken the covenant of, and I'm here waiting. And that's what he does with his people. But he uses the language of divorce when they sin and turn from him, and basically are being like the prodigal son to him as a nation. And yeah, when you come back, we will party. Because that's the picture. And that's what our marriage is supposed to be a picture of. But we don't get that until we're reading through the Bible. And in Genesis 2.24, gets quoted all the time. Little phrases of it sometimes, sometimes the whole thing. Sometimes you'll see on the news, like when they are talking about gay marriage, they'll be like, well, Jesus never talked about it. It's like, well, actually he did. Everything you hear on the news isn't accurate. Just so you know, it's kind of like the internet. I'm just going to Google it. No, well, hold up. <laughs> some of you are Googling. Like I remember when I told the first story, I saw some Texans Googling. When was that? When, when, what was the date of it? Here's a Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talking about, he's asked about divorce. Um, Jesus replied, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Oh, so Jesus talks about this and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, Jesus emphasizes that last part. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he's talking, there's a unique and unequaled oneness that takes place in a marriage relationship. But what's the point? And we don't, we don't know all the points. Like we've seen it's for procreation in the, in the book of Genesis. We've seen it's for companionship. We don't have time to go to 1 Corinthians 7. You could go read that, especially if you're single. That is a great passage for you to look at because it talks about there that marriage is actually the way to protect yourself from temptation. So if you burn with lust, it says, get married. 
So that's a pretty carnal way to talk about sex. Martin Luther, uh, one of the reformers, said that he and his wife had decided we had to have sex at least twice a week so to, just to deal with temptation. Hmm. So are you saying that? Pastor Scott said at least twice a week, honey. No, 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 no. That's for y'all to figure out. That's the beauty of the relationship is you got to work through those pieces. I'm not going to give any tactics today, just so you know. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Genesis 2.24 gets quoted again. Uh, the Apostle Paul has just gone through and talked about different roles the husbands and wives play. And he says this, for this reason, there's that verse again, there's a reason, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, uh, this is an interesting observation, this is a profound mystery. Yeah, you think? <laughs> We've been trying to figure this out for thousands of years, Genesis 2.24. And then he tells us what he's talking about. I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, I'm pointing you to what the Apostle John will write when he talks about the end of the earth in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. I'm talking about the consummation of all things, and it's going to be the bridegroom, Jesus, being united to his wife, the church. That's what it talks about. But how do we live this out? Verse 33, however, each one of you, as you're here today, in the everydayness of life, because this is what the Bible speaks into, also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. You practically play this out in your relationship that points to this mystery that's ultimately a picture of this oneness that's unequaled anywhere else. And the Bible talks about it in positive ways too. Not just divorce, not just whoredom, not just prostitution, not just adultery. There's a whole book in the Bible that's a love song. It's poetic, it's incredibly erotic. Song of Solomon, or if you have the NIV, Song of Songs, I don't know why. Somebody texted me that. Why do they call it? I don't know. They're weird. That's just what they did. It starts off in verse 1, by the way, just to give you the context, where the woman's speaking, and she says, essentially, ravish me with your kisses, smother me with your lips. But then she talks about how she's not attractive, and I love what the man says back. One of the things you'll get from Song of Solomon is an exclusive relationship. Uh, you'll see themes of things of not awakening love before it is time. One of the reasons why I said, I want to send your kids out of here. And she talks about, he goes over the mountains to get to me. He's, she's talking about the curves of her body. It's poetic language, but listen to this one. I compare you, my love, he says, this is the man speaking, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. All right, I mean, I'm not really a horse guy, but whatever. What is he saying? And we just read past that. Like, that doesn't usually come up in, like, the daily light, by the way. It's not like your Bible. My devotion today, you're a mare among the chariots. Huh? All right. See you later, Jesus. So I get what he do. But think about this for a second. I'm not equestrian, but a mare is a female horse. Pharaoh didn't have any female horses in his chariots. They're stallions. They're going to battle. They're focused. If you put a mare among stallions, they will go in a frenzy. They will go wild. It will be chaos. What the husband's saying to his wife here is, that's what you do to me. You excite me. You put me in a frenzy. And, all, and she's talking about how she's not attractive. And he's saying, all men would see that with you. See, there's a passion in that relationship, an erotic passion of intimacy of oneness that's being pictured that many of us have missed. And so you, you go to what it says there in the middle of the passage that we haven't talked about. The marriage bed is undefiled. And I'll, I'll just say to you as our third point is simply this, is that what this vision, this picture that's being, that marriage points us to a greater vision, a more valuable vision, it points us to ultimate pleasure, which is that consummation moment with Jesus at the end of the earth. 
And the marriage bed that's called here with worship language, undefiled, is the climactic pointer in our relationship of that. And many of you have done your sexual relationship exactly like church talked about, and you've never experienced this. Look what it says. It says here, the marriage bed is undefiled. Let me read you from the message. I like what Eugene Peterson says here. He says, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy. So I'd call this sacred sex. Sacred sex points us to ultimate pleasure. And guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex, and then we already talked about adultery, sexual immorality. See, we all have the same temptations that we've seen throughout the Bible. Jesus never had sex, was a complete human. Singles, hear that. It's not a need. Husbands, you're not in middle school. You can't tell your wife, I need to have sex. You don't need to have sex. You want to very strongly. God-given desire. Well, the Bible said in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, never sinned. When did Jesus get tempted for sexual immorality? We could point to passages. We know that Satan only didn't just tempt him once. There's intimate moments. A woman washing her feet is an intimate moment. A prostitute being brought in who's caught in adultery is definitely an opportunity when she's scantily dressed to lust. There are lots of moments in his life. But I, I go to Matthew chapter 4. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Hunger is a God-given desire. Bread is not evil. Satan's temptation is turn these stones to bread. Jesus is the bread of life. He's born in Bethlehem. That's the house of bread. Like, that's not, there's a, what's wrong with bread? There's lots of ways he could have just, look, but don't touch. I'm just not, but I was married before, but we're gonna get married. You just gotta, Jesus didn't do any of that because he knows a God-given desire filled outside of God's timing or in God's way is sin. So he resists that temptation. He's been tempted in every way just as we are. That's the temptation we get. We get the, t- the temptation of sexual sin is the same as Genesis chapter 3. Surely God didn't say, and that's why we fill in the gaps with all of our explanations of why our sin's not that big of a deal or why God would understand because of, he gave me these desires. Yeah, he did, but you're trying to fulfill them in ways that are outside of the bounds. So You're like partially true. It's exactly what Satan does. Partially true, twisted in the wrong way. Now it's sin. And God's not holding out on you. He got something good for you. And some of you are married and you waited. You didn't have sex until marriage. And you've only had sex with your spouse. And you've never had sacred sex. What are you talking about? Well, I thought that was the right way. That's, the, that's a good thing. Here's one of the reasons why I said your kids need to leave. Uh, because sex is not just about don't do the naughty stuff and only do the stuff with this person. Because what many of us have done is brought into our bedrooms what we see in Hollywood, what we see in pornography, what we see in all these other places, and we are there to fulfill our desires in that moment on somebody else's body. But because it's just this one body, why is that different than porn? You're using them for your fleshly fulfillment? This is supposed to be a spiritual encounter? This is undefiled language? This is sacred language? It should be different than all those things. Doesn't mean you're not wanting to have an orgasm. Doesn't mean you don't have these desires for your spouse. But but if this is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, what does the gospel do? Well, the gospel sets you free. I had a a man text me. He was going on a men's retreat a couple weeks ago. He said, I'm taking my son. Will you pray for us? We're going on this retreat. 
Here's the motto. It was a local ministry. Some of you know it. It's Zoe Ministries. Uh, their motto is, no fe- a man has nothing to fear, nothing to prove, nothing to hide. Nothing to fear, nothing to prove, nothing to hide. I thought, when I, I'd never seen that before. I know, I've known the founder of that ministry for 15 years. I just didn't know their slogan. Sorry, Mike. Um, but I thought, that's, that's freedom. Nothing to fear. The Bible says don't fear man, just fear God. The only thing you have to fear is God. What's a man going to do? You take your life? You get to be with Jesus. That's awesome. There go. Nothing to fear here on this earth. Because even the worst thing that could happen to you, we said at the beginning, we all believe that God's good. He works even that for your good. He worked out the murder of his son for the redemption of your soul. He can work out anything for your good. You say, what about the pain that I experienced in my sex life? He can even use that. And today might be a day of healing for some of that. God is good. No fear. Nothing to prove. Jesus, his performance on the cross means you don't have to perform anymore. Because nothing that you are going to do to make other people think whatever of you, good or bad, is going to change God's view of you. It doesn't change who you are. You have nothing to prove. Nothing to hide. (laughs) That's rare. But if there's one place it should happen, here's vision. Vision is what could be and should be. Not necessarily what is, what could be and should be. Shouldn't it be the oneness relationship of a marital union where there's nothing to hide? Not your accountability group with your guys or your you know, ladies' book study. Like, that's all fine, but nothing to hide. They were naked and felt no shame. Where could we restore that at? Oh, in between the sheets in our bedrooms when we're together and we're not there just using each other for our own pleasure. We're bringing the gospel. Do we actually believe it's better to give than to receive? That we're not there to take and consume like we're taught about sex continually. And so that's why I say some of you have never had sacred sex. You've had sex with your spouse who's a Christian and only with that person, but this undefiled, what is undefiled? Total freedom. So what would it be like to have nothing to fear in your relationship with your spouse? Nothing to prove. It's not about your performance after you're done. It's not, hey, how'd you like this? What about this technique? How about that? Like, this isn't ESPN, yo. Like, what if, we, what if we were just growing in intimacy? And guys, you don't need to worry. It'll happen. But what if you were there for her climax and not yours? Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He didn't die for his own sins. He's coming for you. You want a picture of the gospel? How, how would we do this? How could this even happen? Let me tell you what's going to take. You want some homework? I had somebody say to me before the service, a husband, by the way, showed me some money and said, if you give us a homework assignment, there's still something in this for you. All right, here's your homework assignment. You know what it takes? He got the emails, all right? Here's what it takes. It takes communication, intense communication. In fact, what I believe sex is designed to be is a culmination of the intimacy you already have in relationship. And so your sexual encounter experience actually starts in the morning when you wake up and the words you say to one another. It may not climax until midnight or Thursday, but it's in the ups and downs of life and when somebody dies and when baby's born and there's a wedding ceremony and somebody you know is going through a divorce, you're not, it's like sex still happens and all those, you don't just like take a break for like six months, no. It's like as life's happening, and so you come together in that without anything to prove, without anything to hide, you take some confession. So you're going to have to confess things that you've done to your spouse, things that have been done to you, you sure. 
Nothing to hide. Because oftentimes I've said this um, throughout the years of pastoring this church. The gospel is a picture of being fully known and fully loved. Where else but in this oneness that's supposed to take place? It takes communication, it takes confession, it takes a commitment to the flourishing of the other person. And that's a picture. That's a picture of Christ in the church, of the gospel, of what marriage is intended to be. So what do we do? What do we do here today? Here's what's going to be really awkward is go out in the lobby and be like, oh man, the Panthers aren't playing. What do we talk about? Because he just said all that. Well, you have a lot to talk about. And we didn't talk about everything. Somebody's in here has probably been raped and never told anybody. Jesus can enter into that. It gets mess- this is a battle. And battles get really messy. And it'd be easy for us to go, you know, no, don't do the bad stuff, do the good stuff. All right, now you all just go home and figure that out. Uh, well, I want to encourage you that our pastors, our staff, our small groups would love to talk more about these things with you. And what if, like, our church became different, not just because dads came to church on Father's Day, but, like, we had a culture where we could talk about these things appropriately. Like, we're not trying to gross people out or tantalize people, but this is what the, the Bible talks about it, and we're people that are under the Word, so let's talk about what the Word says, and then how does it apply in your life? And, and so what we're going to do right now is I'm going I'm to take us to prayer. I'm going to pray, but I want you to pray about your own sexual experiences. And for some of you, that means there needs to be freedom. Some of you, there's healing. And some of you, there's a greater vision. I had somebody tell me after the first service, we've been married for a long time. I don't want you to try and figure out who it is. So we've never talked about this thing. I did, and I got to see my spouse love me in a different way. Maybe that's you for the service. Let's go to him. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. and Our good heavenly Father. First of all, thanks for creating good gifts. We know every good gift comes from you. It comes from above. You've given us this good gift of an intimate relationship that gets so far past the highs and bys and politicals and sports and like all the surface level conversations that you want us to be one at the soul level. Father, some of us have some significant soul damage because there's, we have partaken in dangerous things. And... I was thinking about the child traffic that I was being told about in the first service and, and the woman's hurt. And Father, I just pray that's happening in this room too. Will you enter in right now? Will you enter into the damage and the difficulty and the mess and bring hope and healing? I pray for the person who submitted the anonymous prayer request this week that is struggling with same-sex attraction. They want the desires gone. And Father, you could miraculously take the desires away, or maybe not. Maybe they'll continually struggle with that their whole life, but you can give them strength and peace and power and victory and no condemnation. Father God, will you bring freedom into marriages? That the marriage bed would be undefiled, that it would be a place where you are glorified and worshiped because it's a picture of the intimate union you have with us where we're fully known and fully loved, where we have nothing to hide and nothing to prove and where we can be fearless. And Father, I pray that you would make that true in the lives and hearts of our elders and our pastors and their wives and the people on the tech team and the members and attenders and people that popped in one time and somebody who's watching online right now is having a follower of yours and talking about sex in a way they've never heard of before. And, and Father, I pray that they would come to know your son Jesus as Savior. And you wouldn't just change their sex life, you change their whole life. And I pray, God, that we would put our lives as a living sacrifice on the altar before you, and you would change 
our banks, our, our entertainment, our sex, our everything about us that would draw people to your son Jesus. And Father, the, the world, all this have been under attack. Just the simple being kind stands out today. And I pray that you would change us and give us a vision for the future when there is no more crying and pain and that you'd help us to show that to some people here now. It's in Jesus' name. And before I say amen, I just want to say, some of you still need to talk to the Lord. Don't, don't have to stop praying because I say amen. I know in our, in our brand of churches, we've got these like things that we just do. If you want to keep praying, you keep praying. If you want to stay seated, you stay seated. You want to kneel down, kneel down. You want to come on the front and pray, you come on the front and pray. Whatever you need in this moment, today, if you hear his voice, listen. Some of you need your virginity restored. That can happen. Can't take away that the experience took place. But God can make you pure again. He is faithful. He is just. He will cleanse you from all, not all but your sin, all unrighteousness. If you confess, that means say to him about it what he says about it. It's broken your relationship. Restore the relationship. Just come back and say, God, I want you. I want to be back. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Those who won't, those who are persist in their sin, God, do whatever you have to do to get their attention before they're judged by you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.